You may not have realized, but what crept up on us last week, actually, was the one-year anniversary of us moving into the building. Yeah, it's been quite a year. It's been, uh, it's been a fast year. I mean, you, you couldn't have convinced me, apart from a calendar, that it's actually been a year since we moved in. That boy, that just seems like six months ago, maybe, that we were having grand opening celebrations. But this morning, uh, very much wanted to turn our attention in a significant way to that event. I think we should. I think it's, it's what God would have us to do. Psalm 105 That's where I want to begin. And Matt really helped us to see this already. So I'm really just going to make a quick point from Psalm 105. Because it tells us to do something, which is exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to remember going to contemplate and be affected by what God has done in our lives. And this is a great exercise. This psalm is just a great mental exercise. And so if you're looking for a place to start your day, Psalm 105 is a great place to start your day. Look at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments He uttered. And that's a great exercise right there. It just sort of builds on itself. It's almost as though the psalmist isn't satisfied to say any of these things in and of themselves, by themselves. He just begins to just go on and on and on. So I made a little list, right? So here's what you're told to do. Give thanks. Make known. Sing. Right? Always got to put a plug in here for singing. Because, you know, singing is different than giving thanks and making known. I can make known conversationally. I can make known just by talking out loud. But when I sing, it reaches into a different part of me. All right, so what we do here, this is, this is I'm not thinking of anybody in particular right, at this moment, but I am thinking of a group that might be those who tend to trickle in when the music is fading. Uh, as though Matt and these guys are the warm-up band for the act. And so if you miss the warm-up band, you know, big deal. No, no. Worshiping God is about singing. It's about being so deeply affected by who God is that singing is what comes out of us. So if you're missing the singing part, you are missing something very significant. And you might want to let God tweak you a bit with the reality that it's not just these people who like singing. It's God who likes singing. Sing to him, right? So God says, give thanks, make known, sing, tell, glory in, right? Glory in is just sort of the over the top dynamic. It's, it's more than just telling about the great things that God has done. It's glorying and it's celebrating them. It's making such a big to do out of the things that God has done. Seek, and I'm going to come back to that word later on, and remember. Now, these are things that my soul needs to do. 
When we awake every day of our lives, we, we need these dynamics. It will affect your day to begin with giving thanks and calling forth the reasons for which you do that. By singing, whether you felt like singing or not. By telling of the wondrous deeds of God. By remembering what God has done. Now, I know man, each day, we're going to see in this passage in just a moment, each day has enough trouble of its own. So sometimes remembering, I don't have room to remember. I got enough going on today. Right? I've got too much to take care of just today to remember. But the Bible says I need to remember. I need to look back and be captured by something that's already happened so that I can have the proper frame of thinking for today. So, so that's what we're doing today. We're a week late. Last week would have been actually the anniversary of us moving back here in the building. But with the Pivot and Singles Retreat, we didn't want to have hundred and something people away when we were remembering this significant event together. And what I want to do is when we get to the end of the message, we're going to do some serious remembering and details. But I want us to to take a little bit of a journey through a principle that is in Scripture uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. So you you can be turning there uh, to Matthew chapter 6. And this morning, in remembering... Moving into this building, which, which is a bit of a memorial stone. I mean, anybody who's been in the church for a while can remember from whence we came, where we were before, the things that happened in our lives that brought us to this point, a storyline that I hope will cause us to, to remember things about God. But at the end of this message, I not only want to pay tribute to this truth that I think was observable through this period, but to those who walked in the truth of God. Boy, I thank God that that all we have to talk about here is not a building. You know, the only thing we got going on a year later is a building. We ain't got much going on, right? And not in the kingdom of God anyway. But the building represents something. And the building is being used in ways that are so significant in people's lives. And your participation in making this happen is an honoring of a text here that we're going to look at. So I really felt like this is, this is what I wanted to have us focus in on this morning. This one passage found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I'm... I'm Warn you in advance, this is a Bible verse that you will get much mileage out of in your life. This is a Bible verse that if you're reading it for one of the first times this morning, will become one of the most dear passages in Scripture to you. Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we'll look at the context for that in just a moment. But, but this is one of those statements that, that needs to go somewhere visible in your world, right? It needs to be a refrigerator magnet. It needs to be a bumper sticker. It needs to be framed art in your home somewhere. It, it needs to be accessible quickly in the morning when you wake up, right? How, how many of you would be guilty of this? You wake up in the morning, your brain is in neutral, and then the day is already in motion, right? You woke up and the escalator of life was already moving 
The swirl was beginning. You could hear the wind howling and you're about to get sucked into the vortex of living. And when that happened, all these thoughts were going to come with it. And you were just going to now live the rest of your day on your heels. Just, just trying to deal with what was coming and the thoughts and the emotions and the concerns that were going to come into your life in that moment. Listen, one of the most valuable things, and I'm finding this more and more necessary in my life as the busyness of life, as the news of life uh, continues, I'm needing to start my day more and more intentionally every day. Because if I don't get my mind pointed in the right direction from the beginning, when life starts moving at 90 miles an hour, it's very hard to steer something moving that fast. It's very hard. So if it started off headed east and it needed to be headed west, i got to fight on my hands all day long emotionally in my thoughts to ever wrestle this thing back in this direction. So let me encourage you in this. I think in your life, there'll be seasons where God's doing different things in your life. And there'll be some things that float to the top for you. In your life, every day, I think we need a little bit of a short list of, of truths from God that sort of get me on track. And in different seasons, I think there'll be different words. I think this one, though, will frequently need to be on the list. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. There's such guidance in that. There's priority in that. There's informing me of what to make sure I manage today. And what if I don't get to it, it's okay. These passages can be almost like missile guidance systems. You know, when when a ballistic missile gets launched from another part of the world... You know, it's not as though it's only guidance is when it's within 10 feet off the ground. And then after that, we just hope it lands in the right spot. Well, no, you know, it travels a thousand miles and all along the way, there's a guidance system in it that's just nudging it a little bit. If it just starts to veer a little bit, it just gets nudged and, and, and it stays on course. I mean, you realize if you're a thousand miles away and you get off course by this much, that wasn't a lot, right? You do realize you miss the target by 150 miles by the time you land. So there's little guidance systems that just nudge the missile as it flies to keep it on target. Well, I need that. When I take flight, I have a tendency to get blown by the wind, uh, to get affected by my own emotions and feelings that day. I need the truth of God to nudge me throughout the day, pull my thinking back in a certain direction. Listen, if we're not doing that, oh, how ineffective we are as believers. How off course we are. I don't even have to guess. Are you off course? Yes. Absolutely off course. Because the world's busy and it's loud and it's pushy and it's effective. And if something's not guiding me, like these passages, I need passages like this to guide me. But before we get into this directive, because there's a directive given here. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is a fix-it for us. But before we get to that, notice the context here. The context begins, really begins in the Sermon on the Mount earlier. But I'm going to just go back as far as verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more 
than clothing. In verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The Gentiles worry about that. But listen, on the heels of do not be anxious, it's do not do this, do this. This is what the directive is. So we have these options before us. And interestingly, because, you know, seek first the kingdom of God, because it throws that first thing in there, it, it arrests my thinking with priorities. Right? So Keith, think about seeking first the kingdom of God. And so immediately you want to apply this to, okay, well, who needs to hear this? Well, the, you know, the people who aren't seeking first the kingdom. The slackers, that's who needs to hear this. The people who are just lazy Christians don't get around to seeking the kingdom of God. That might be the audience I would write this for. But the audience Jesus speaks this into is an anxious audience. Which is a very different audience than what I just described. I mean, what is an anxious person? Let me tell you what he's not. An anxious person is not an unmotivated person. An anxious person is not a dispassionate person. But quite honestly, he is exactly the opposite of that. An anxious person is eager for something. He's passionate about something. He's obsessed with something in his life that captures him. He is focused on it. He's ambitious. An anxious person wants things. Listen, if you just... You're just dull, you know, nothing animates you. You don't worry. There's nothing on your mind right now. Well, then you're, you're not an anxious person at all. When you become ambitious for something, you want something, you focus on it, you're directed toward it. That's, that's an anxious person. The difficulty is he is devoted, in this passage at least, he's devoted to something else than God's kingdom and his righteousness. See, because these two are set in contrast to each other. Jesus is about to speak about a remedy to anxiety in our life by directing us into seeking something else. Your outline there, I wrote out this thought. An anxious person is a person who is filled with faith, who exercises faith, and who is not easily moved from their belief. <clears throat> In the wrong thing. You ever talk with an anxious person? You ever try to move somebody from their anxiety? They're enamored, captured, concerned, weighed down with. Now, now, let me just say, for some, if you, you don't deal with this, it, it becomes a bit of a lifestyle. It's kind of the glass half empty kind of dynamic. You know, that, that whole, you can tend to let yourself go there more than you ought. And... If you've dealt with someone like this, you know you have your hands full to move them. They hold their position tenaciously. They're anxious and they're concerned and they're worried. And almost all of your help and your words and your insights are like rubber bullets that just bounce off of them, right? You bring scripture, you bring reason, you bring logic, you bring past history, and it's like, pew, 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 pew. when you're done shooting all your bullets, you're like, click, 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 click. They're still sitting there like, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work out. You know, this happened before and, you know, just concern, immovable. You know, before we mystify this beyond where it should be, 
Let's consider this. The mechanics of anxiety are the same as the mechanics of peace. The mechanics of becoming anxious are the same as the mechanics of peace because they both involve faith. All right, here's the mechanics. Five steps. Five steps to anxiety or five steps to peace. You choose where you go with this, all right? One, discover a promise, right? Discover that there's a promise out there. And this promise is an idea containing future good for you. All right? So that could go in 300 different directions this morning. Some of us would share some of these similar ideas. But you discover there's a promise out there. Something is making you a promise about good in the future. Right? Secondly, you begin to ponder the promise. Hmm, what would that be like? Would that really be good? How would it feel? How would it benefit me? Third, you place faith and hope in the promise because it's not here yet. It's just a possibility in the future. And you begin to get convinced the more you ponder it that, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that could happen. Uh, I, I think it will happen. I think it's going to happen. Right now, so far, I can dress that up in one of two ways, right? I, I think it will happen. And I think it's going to happen. Or I, I think that's going to happen. I, I think it will happen. You understand? It's the same activity. One's going to bring me in the anxiety. The other one's going to bring me in the peace. I fight to keep faith and hope in the promise. I fight to keep it there. Right? I've exercised some faith in something. It doesn't yet exist. It's not real yet. It's a future possibility. And so all along the way, I have to fight to maintain it because it's not sight yet. It's just possible. And then I import the future benefit of that promise into today. Right? I, I reach into the future and all that I've meditated on and I, I bring that future into right now so that I can have a sense of oh, it's going to be OK. It's going to be good. Right? Now, realize that promise can be a variety of things. It can be the word of God. It can be the truth of God or it can be something else. And the moment it becomes something else, you have now signed on for the possibility of anxiety, of being fearful, being consumed and concerned. All right, if you buy into the idea that that money is related to happiness, it's just an idea, right? Just an idea. I'm just going to throw that out for you today. Money and happiness are related. And you start pondering it. Now, if you watch TV, you'll get a lot of help to ponder it. If you read newspaper ads, you get a lot of help to ponder it. If you listen to what the culture and the world system has convinced most people of, you will get confirmation of this. And this is how faith gets built, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Well, faith in the wrong thing comes similarly. So enough people testify about how great this thing was in their life. And well, of course, because they could afford it. And the new this is in their life and how entertaining it is and how much fun it is. And the lifestyle that they're being afforded and all the stories that come from it and the smiling faces on the beach where everything's great. And you just begin to just create this idea, this, this promise that if I could just have more money, I'd be, I'd be happier. And you begin to ponder that and think about it and you imagine it and you import the possibility that, you know, okay, I'll, I'll go to school. I'll, I'll, 
buckle down, my business, I'll do this, I'll invest in that. And you try and create ways to get money. And you begin to think about when I get that money and you import, when you get that money, right, you import it into today. Right, right now you're in debt, you can't afford things. It's tight, it's difficult. Everybody else is and you're not. But if you just borrow from the future the promise, the possibility that it'll be better if I could just have money. Okay, now, then that feels good for a moment. It feels good for a moment when you think you thought your lottery numbers matched the one on TV. Uh, it feels good for a moment when you're going to get a tax return this year. And wow, I didn't know it was going to be that big. Something kind of leaps up in your heart for a moment. That this, this is going to be good. But the fallout of putting your faith in that is the possibility that you could lose it too. And your brain can't resist that one. It's unavoidable. But what if I don't get that? What if I lose what I have? What if we lose this? What if to file for bankruptcy? And your mind begins to go down that road. And guess what you get when you ponder that and consider that? And you watch the stock report and you listen to the economy. And, and now the thing you put your hope in is being threatened. And what are you getting instead? You're getting anxiety. And now you pick whatever category it is that you're tempted to find some promise. Money's making you a promise in that moment. Uh, maybe people are making you a promise. That if you could just behave a certain way, be a certain way, then you'd be accepted by people. And you know, if you were just accepted by people, as a matter of fact, if you were accepted by people in that group right there, if I was accepted by them, if I could fit in, right? And this starts in school and it continues into adulthood. If I could just be part of that group, then, you know... That, I'd have a good life. See, there's potential good bound up in those people. So, so now I've got to figure out how to behave to win them over, how to dress, do I have the right money. Again, do I fit in their social circle? Do I need to lose some weight? Do I need to be concerned about my figure? And I mean, these are things that really go through people's minds. I mean, do you, why do you obsess over your appearance? Why are you concerned whether your hair is falling out or not? Why are you upset that you came back and you cannot believe what that beautician did to your head? I mean, why? I mean, was she, was she on drugs today? Look at this thing. Uh, what's going on in that moment? What, I mean, right, there's anxiety coming up. All of a sudden, something's being affected. Well, you know, might I be putting hope in my ability to win people, to charm them with something about me? That will then, therefore, their response to me will make me feel good. I'll feel good about my life because the right people feel the right way about me. Well, you borrow that from the future. Maybe you're winning a few people. But, you know, as soon as that person stops paying attention or there's a rumor about you that's being spread. And -and so-and-so doesn't return your call anymore. And you heard that somebody said something about you in an email or, or a comment was made on Facebook that wasn't, oh, what does that mean? And and what's happening now? Well, you're losing something in your life and you become anxious about it now. See, if you buy into those things to bring you life, you bring with that anxiety and fear. Because you can lose those things. But listen, if you're going to have any sense of hope in them, you're going to have to fight by faith to maintain it. Because all along the way, you're going to be tempted that this doesn't work. All along the way. So even to believe the wrong thing, you have to fight for it by faith. The same thing is true about walking in peace and joy and trust in God. You have to fight for it 
to maintain it and walk in it. You have to believe something about God and what he has said about your future and what your life is dependent upon. And you have to reach into the future where God has been and has said, Keith, I've been there. I'm just coming back to tell you I'm sovereign over your life. I'm good. You trust me. All that I do in your life works together for good. I've been there. I've stood a year from now. I've stood two years from now on that piece of ground in your life. It's okay. Trust me. Now, I haven't been there. Now, guess what, though? I haven't been to the land of weight loss either. Well, if I lose weight, you know, I'll feel good about me. They'll feel good about me. You haven't been there. People might think you're stuck up. <laughs> Look at you, stuck on you. Look, you went and lost weight. I bet you think you're hot stuff. You don't know how people are going to respond in the future to you. But by faith. Well, you know, the Bible gives me the opportunity to believe God in the future and to import the good of God's promises into right now so that I might not feel real good about where I am right now, but I have the opportunity to fight for faith in God in the future and trust him. In that moment. And whether you end up in the land of anxiety or in the land of peace, you go through the same steps to get there. So let's not any of us be thinking, but you know, anxiety is so much easier. No, no, it's not. Anxiety takes work to get it. You want to be anxious? You're going to have to work at it. Telling you right now. (laughs) Don't be telling me that. Yes, you will. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to go through the motions of believing something, finding something, clinging to it. You're going to have to resist arguments. If you're in the body of Christ, people are fighting you on these things. They keep telling you, don't don't worry about that. And you're resisting them. You're fighting. You're struggling to hold on to it. Same mechanics to end up in either place. Now, one thing that is common, though, in this world is fear. It's a great backdrop Jesus uses here because fear is all around us. Ed Welch says one of the haunting dilemmas of the human condition is that fear is an inescapable feature of earthly life. So if you've experienced fear, you're not alone. All of us are experiencing fear in some category of our lives at some time. Even John Piper, I appreciate John's joining us on planet Earth sometimes and not always being Mr. Holy Pants. Um, that's, that's a mat phrase. John says, my struggle with anxiety is not just at the end of vacations. He talks about when he comes back from vacations and returning to the normal routines. There's just this anxiety for him. He says, I wake up anxious virtually every morning. It's probably some weird quirk in my personality. Or maybe some remnant of imbalanced parental upbringing or more likely... Because there's sin in my mind and heart every day. Whatever the reason, it is a very real experience that I hate and have to deal with every day. So this sermon is for me. He preached a sermon called Do Not Be Anxious. Right? And this, would be true. this would be true for any of us. Right? None of us are excluded. I am not excluded from having to get up and have my biblical props adjust me. Before I go through the motions of the day, because fear is such an easy and inviting off ramp on the interstate. Right. It's it's got signs. It makes sense. It's irresistible. They're giving coke away if you buy one. You know, it's like you want to get off and, and be afraid. You want to at something. It's, it's the reason why when you read the Bible, you know, the number one command in Scripture. Is do not be afraid over 300 times. We're told, do not be afraid. I'm thinking the Bible's not wasting ink here. It must be that we need to hear this. 
But this thought from Kent Hughes. This will help us be informed a little better. He says, worrying does not enable you to escape evil. It makes you unfit to cope with it. Right? Read that again. Worrying does not enable you to escape evil. Right? Here comes evil. We see this dark cloud rolling at us. The report of something. The possibility. Here, here it comes. And it's almost as though, I don't know, like an ostrich. Let's stick our head in the hole of worry. You know, if, I, if I worry, it'll go away. Uh, I'm worrying. You know, it, it doesn't help you to escape evil. It's coming whether you worry or not. It's coming. It's part of this fallen world. It's going to be at your door. But what worry does do, it makes me unfit to deal with it when it comes. I'm in a frame of mind. I'm worked up. I'm paralyzed. I'm a deer in the headlights. Instead of being who God's called me to be when I look at that thing. Big difference. Being anxious and worried about things is not going to serve the believer. He says, the truth is, we always have the strength to bear the trouble when it comes. That's news, huh? Because it doesn't feel that way. But we always have the strength to bear the trouble when it comes. But we do not have the strength to bear worrying about it. And this is a very helpful insight. God gives grace for certain things, right? God says, do this, I give you the grace for that. Do this, I give you the grace for that. Now, we derail God and we said, okay, God, thanks for that offer. I'd like to worry today and tomorrow all day and probably lose sleep as well. God, so could you give me grace for that? And God says, nope, not in my plan. You get no grace for that. You'd like to worry, you do that on your own. You do it with all the strength you got, and then when you're tired, burned out, worn out, and then you're going to be in no shape to trust me because you'll get worked over by that. God gives grace to trust Him. Right, so for the believer, this, this is why I say, listen, being anxious requires work. Work you've got to do on your own. Trusting God, you get help. I get aid from God to believe God. I get aid from God to look at a promise from God and let it come alive in the writing on my heart that the Holy Spirit's done. I get help from God. You decide to be anxious, you're on your own. So which one's really easier? I think trusting God. Helpful insight here. Ken Hughes also says, if you add today's troubles to tomorrow's troubles, you give yourself an impossible burden. Right now, now this is this is some, this is the mechanics that we don't always do. Right, we feel overwhelmed by a situation in our life; it's overtaken us, and so what we say is, "God, this is more than I can bear." Right, and we find that God's grace is not sufficient for us in that moment. What is it that we're really experiencing? Is it true that the grace of God that came to me today was not sufficient for today's trouble? I mean, Jesus goes on here in verse thirty-four. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. My grace is sufficient for you for today. Well, I'm facing a circumstance and all of a sudden I feel overwhelmed. Listen, if, you, if you're doing a, a little litmus test here to figure out why do I feel overwhelmed, it's not because God's grace is insufficient. It's because I've imported more than today into today. I've borrowed tomorrow and next week's 
issues and I've made them today. And see, I want to be at peace with what's coming next week today. And God says, no, I want you to be at peace with what's going on today, today. I'll give you grace to be at peace today with today. You get no grace for tomorrow or the next day or next week. None. Now, you get that when you get to next week, but you don't get it today. So if you and I begin to feel overburdened by life, it is because we have taken the future and imported it into today. And God said, don't do that. All right, sufficient for today is what's going on today. But in this passage, anxiety is the backdrop for seeking first the kingdom of God. It's, it's the antithesis. It's almost as though we have a choice here. We can be anxious or we can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Right? Anxiety has the power to de-emphasize kingdom pursuit in our lives. When we begin to pursue it, when we start believing something else in my life is essential for a good life, then I get derailed from the pursuit of the kingdom of God. The moment I start, whether it's money, whether it's health, whether it's being married, whether it's a relationship, the moment my goodness in life is bound up in one of those things, immediately the kingdom of God begins to diminish in my pursuits. Why? Because I've, I've got to have that. I've got to make room for thinking and strategizing and going after that and protecting it. I, I, I've got to have that. The good of my life is bound up in you or money or that or health. And so, you know, I can't pursue the kingdom of God right now. This is, this is too critical. Remember, uh, Jeff shared a great passage last week, taught on this from John 17. In this, verse 3, in this, in this is eternal life. That they know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You want a good life? It's in that passage. That's life. Knowing, taking in, breathing in God and His Son. That's life. Can you only do that when things are going well? No. As a matter of fact, most of us would have to admit we have known God more deeply and tasted Him more fully when things aren't just cruising along, everything falling in place. It's when we've hit bumps and difficulties that knowing God has been the deepest and most effective thing in our lives. So then, then why would we want to avoid that at all cost? Well, because that's not what my life is about. Knowing God's not what my life is about. My life is about the reward of that thing or the good that's in that thing or having that go my way. That's what I think life is. And so now I'm not going to pursue the kingdom of God. That's why anxiety is set here against the backdrop of seeking first the kingdom of God. Because when we get anxious about something, our pursuit of the kingdom of God will not remain first. It will be greatly diminished. In your outline there, it says, anxiety is an action. It is not passive. It involves eagerness and earnest desire. It involves pursuit. Which is why the remedy in this passage is found in the word seek. Anxiety is about seeking the wrong things. The remedy is about seeking the right thing. Right? In this passage, when Jesus draws the picture of anxious people about their life, he moves us to, here's the remedy, seek first the kingdom of God. Let me just deal with those three elements there. 
Seek. What does it mean to seek? See, if I tell you don't be anxious, that, that sounds passive, doesn't it? You're all worked up. You get up in the morning, you're worked up, whatever it is that, that the news report, the thing going on in your life. How's this going to go today? I've got to meet with this person today. What if they tell me, no, you can't get that loan. No, you're going to lose your job. And my mind is racing and I'm all worked up. And somebody comes along and says, hey, 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 hey. Hey, the Bible says, don't be anxious. It sounds like an invitation to nothing. Doesn't it? Just, just calm down, man. You just, just need to trust God. And so we go from busy, busy activity to, okay, okay. That's not what this verse teaches. Right? Listen, the word used here for seek is zeteo. In the Greek, it means to try to gain, to strive after, with the idea of, listen, earnestness and anxiety. And this is an interesting remedy, isn't it? I'm all worked up and anxious about something going on in my life, not going my way, and I'm fearful and I'm focused and I'm eager and ambitious. And Jesus comes along and says, don't be anxious for that. Be anxious for this. He doesn't come along and say, hey, let's just let all the air out of any concerns and focus and ambitions in life. Let's just let's let's lobotomize you. You know, you're just a Christian who doesn't care about anything. I'm just at peace, man. Whatever happens, whatever happens, man. It's just me. I just trust in God. Just wandering through the countryside. It's it's an invitation to stop being anxious about that and get anxious about this. Be eager for this. Be passionate for this. So this, this is where Christianity loses its wheels. Because we make Christianity dispassionate. It's, you know, we're just trying to survive here, planet Earth. We're just trying to not be worked up. Now, Christianity is ambitious. It wants something. It's after something. It's eager. And my heart wants to be passionate about something. My heart wants to be jazzed about something. I, I want to run over things and get to stuff. I'm made for that. It's just that I'm not made for it in those categories. I'm made for it in this one. So the call to seek, which is a, a, a present tense command, so it's an ongoing activity, is a call to be striving after something, to be earnest for, to be anxious about whether it's happening. So when I think about the kingdom of God and his righteousness, am I, am I this morning as a Christian, anxious about the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Listen, because this is not, this this is not an invitation for Christians to not be concerned. Paul said he was anxious about things. And I don't think that was an invitation for us to rebuke him from Matthew chapter 6. Paul, you know, the Bible says, don't be anxious. Paul, Paul said, I've got this going on in my life, I've got this going on in my life, I've got this going on in my life, I've got these concerns, that issue, and, and above all this, I had the anxieties of the pressure for all the churches. It was a proper anxiety. It was a concern and a passion and an earnest devotion and an eagerness in his life for seeking first the kingdom of God. See, my earnestness and passion and eagerness needs to be found in a category. In the right category. I think that word first, it helps me. It helps me one, because it doesn't say sort of seek. And there is an only in this, so don't take this wrong. 
But it's not as though the only thing I should wake up in the morning being concerned with is, okay, I'm just, today, I'm just going to be devoted to the camera. I'm going to read my Bible all day long and pray and sing. He said, sing. I'm going to sing today. Uh, that's all I'm going to do today. I'm not, I'm not going to work. Um, you know, I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak to my children or my wife. I'm just going to lock myself away and I'm going to sing and I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to pray because I'm, today I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. Uh, no, that's not what this is saying. There's, there's ways in which we seek the kingdom of God. But, but the dynamic of first establishes some element of priority, that there are things in our life that we're going to do that are just not to be done at this level. They're not to be in that prized position of number one pursuit. Right? John Calvin, very helpful thought. He says, the evil is not that we desire things, but that we desire them too much. This is, this, that is one of the most helpful clarifying things for Christians. Because again, we, we, it's this Christian lobotomy practice. It's like you get ambitious and eager and passionate. And almost the remedy to that is, well, you know, you shouldn't care. You shouldn't care about anything. Well, no, we're supposed to care about things. We're supposed to be eager and ambitious for things in our life. We're supposed to be. But the problem comes in when we care about them too much. When they climb too far up the priority list, when they displace what's supposed to be number one and they become number one, that's when the problem emerges. So, you know, is my marriage supposed to be somewhere on my list? Absolutely. Is being a provider, having a career supposed to be somewhere on my list? Absolutely. For a Christian. It's just not to be at the top of the list. Which is a daily battle to wake up and say, okay, God, what today is most important to me? What am I seeking after more than anything else? And you will know immediately whether your heart's going to enter in a realm of peace or anxiety. Kevin DeYoung, his book, Just Do Something, says, verse 33 in Matthew 6, is crucial for understanding the will of God for our lives. He calls us to run hard after him. He command, his commands and his glory. Go hard after those things. The decision to be in God's will is not the choice between Memphis or Fargo or engineering or art. It's the daily decision we face to seek God's kingdom or ours. Submit to his lordship or not. Live according to his rules or our own. The question God cares about most is not, where should I live? But do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind? And do I love my neighbor as myself? This is very helpful because, you know, honestly, honestly, how many Christians are asking for prayer, seeking the will of God? I want to understand this. And God, what do you want me to do? God, do you, do you want me to go back to school? I just, I just, I need to, I'm wrestling through this as a burden on me. You know, should I take that job? You know, we'd have to move and it's just so important that we know the will of God in this. Or, or should we buy that house? And, and we're wrestling through. And there's importance to these decisions. But we wrestle through these things like they're so critical while, while we haven't checked in lately to see, do I love God with all my heart? Am I passionate for the kingdom of God? Do I want that to come? Do I wake in the night concerned about the kingdom? Do I get up in the morning? And my focus is on the righteousness of God in this world, on God receiving glory, on his kingdom advancing. Do I wake up concerned about that? See, because if that's not my concern, but I'm staying up, freaking out, 
about whether or not I should go back to school or not. I tell you, in comparison, not that that doesn't matter to God. In comparison, however, it doesn't matter to God. So what kind of a declaration of who God is would there be for a people of God who lack a passion for God, but who are obsessed about whether they should go to that school or that school, whether they should have that degree or that degree, whether they should marry this person or that person, whether they should live in that house or that house. I'm obsessed about these things, but nominal about my passion for the kingdom of God and for his righteousness. So now, this, this would be way too familiar in many, many of our lives. The priority for God is about our passion for his kingdom coming in our lives. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? Ken Hughes says seeking his kingdom primarily means trying to spread the reign of Christ through the the spread of the gospel. It involves a profound poverty of spirit. Seeking his righteousness involves... Making his righteousness attractive in all areas of life. Personal, family, material, international. See, listen, you know how sometimes you walk into a service and the message sort of gets up in your business unexpectedly? And some examples thrown out, it's a little too close to home, the grenade goes off and blows your leg off. You know, the reason why we get caught off guard is, is we, we have these categories of our life that we live within. And we have a church category, we have our covenant group meeting category, and then we have our work category, and we have our personal watching the football game category, and we have our uh, home life category. And, and sometimes there's just this disconnect between these categories in our life. And so, you know, an example comes from the pulpit and oops, it's in the backyard of my disconnect zone where I don't really bring Christianity with me there. You know, I can't resist this. I'm going to do more on this topic. But, you know, Facebook is, you know, it's it's like our alter ego. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's like I'm a Christian until I get on Facebook. And now I'm I'm just full of obscure, weird things saying and commenting on things that make people wonder, uh, what are you and what do you really believe? Right? There's this disconnect that goes on in our lives in the Facebook zone, and in many of the categories of our lives. So an example comes, like right now the Facebook example is visiting you, and you realize, oh, I made a really bad comment the other day on there. You know, God's still God when you're on Facebook. I don't know if you've realized that. Um, (laughs) Cyberspace isn't like God's blind to cyberspace. He doesn't see any of that. It doesn't glorify him. It doesn't do anything for him. And oh, it does, very much does. That picture you put up very much says something about the glory of God in your life or doesn't say something about the glory of God in your life. So, you know, might want to bring Christianity with you into that category. But, you know, you you don't kind of have to bring Christianity into categories of your life if every morning I awake with a passion for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If that's my passion, then it sort of shines its light on whatever category I walk in walk into a conversation with my wife. No one looking. 
just her and I. But with me comes a passion for God's righteousness. So whatever I just said to her that no one else will ever know about, did I have a passion for the righteousness of God in that moment? As if I didn't, I've, I've turned Christianity into this compartmentalized activity where it doesn't travel with me everywhere. See, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it, it, it solves that disconnect in the Christian life. D.A. Carson says the norms of the kingdom require that our lifestyle be distinctive. Our worries must not sound like the worries of the world. When the Christian faces the pressure of examination, does he sound like the pagan in the next room? When he is short of money, even for the essentials, does he complain with the same tone, the same words, and the same attitude as those around him? Away with secular thinking. The follower of Jesus will be concerned to have a distinctive lifestyle. Well, that's a helpful thought, especially if you're a young person here who's trying to figure out how to dress, how to act, how to talk, how to fit in. You're not called by God to fit in. God's got a mandate on your life. He's got the rights to your life. He's got a plan for your life that's distinctive. The world is aiming as fast as possible at bringing glory to sin. God comes in and says, no, for you, that will not be the course of life for you. For you, you get to bring glory to me. And you will have a distinctive flavor. Now listen, if you're not comfortable with a distinctive flavor, you have a real hard time with God's agenda for the rest of your life. One that is characterized by values and perspectives so unpagan that this life and conduct are, as it were, stamped all over with the words, made in the kingdom of God. I love that. It's like somebody ought to be picking you up and turning you over to find out what the heck was this thing made. You know, you know how you do that when the shirt shrinks about five times smaller when you bought it? It's like you brought it home, it looked like it was too big for you, and then you can't put it on your children? Don't you read the label? I immediately want to know, okay, what country made this? You know, sure enough, <laughs> made in Shrinkville. Uh, when somebody comes in contact with the kingdom of God in our life, there should be such a distinctive tone and flavor and effect that they want to turn it over and say, where, where was this dude made? What's going on? And it all stamped on there should be made in the kingdom of God. It should tell the story of why it is that we're different. Now, listen, let me run through this thought here real quickly. Down through the ages, from the fall on, but especially we just deal with the Christian era. I'm going to go back in the Old Testament just for one second. Fear and faith have coexisted together. We don't get to have one or the other in this life. So we're, we're going to have opportunities for faith that seeks first the kingdom of God against the backdrop of anxieties. So it's not as though it's a seesaw and we have one or the other. We're all, we're all anxious. We're all at peace with God. We're all, we're all anxious. No, we get to seek first the kingdom of God against the backdrop of life's anxieties. So in the midst of anxieties, I have the opportunity to be anxious for the kingdom of God while these are screaming at me to be anxious for them. And that's through, true throughout history for God's people. Look, the hall of faith. If you read through Hebrews 11, you would find fear and faith coexisting together. Anxieties with faith. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham 
obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, right? That's seeking. He was ambitious, willing to sacrifice, and eager for something. He went out not knowing where he was going. That's anxious. All in the same verse next to each other. He picked up his family, his flocks, and his wife asked him, Honey, where are we going again? Wives, you would love this answer from your husband, wouldn't you? Honestly, honey, I don't know. <laughs> wow, that sounds great, babe. How do we pack? You know, well, we take everything. We, we just take it all. We're not coming back. <laughs> Can you imagine the anxiety? How will we eat? What are the people like there? What if they don't believe like we do? What if they don't like us being on their land? What if they kill us all? What if our flocks die along the way? What if we pass through a desert and we can't feed them and everything we own perishes, Abraham? Do you think this guy had some opportunity for anxiousness? Absolutely. But he went out in eagerness, pursuing first the kingdom of God. Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Do you think that was an anxious moment? This man is raising a knife over his son's life. Think that was anxious? Not just his son whom he loved, but his future. Remember, all the promises of God are tied up in this one. It's God's promised child through whom all the blessing will flow. And you're going to, I'm going to do what? I'm going to kill him? This was an opportunity to be anxious. But yet Abraham raises that knife, seeking first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you think that was an anxious moment? The life that Moses has known has been a life of benefit and luxury in the upper class of Egypt. And he's about to set all that aside and go become a Hebrew slave. Do you think there were some concerns? Do you think his mind raced about what? This is going to look like and what will happen to me? Will my future be good and comfortable? Is there anything good about this? A lot of temptation in that moment, but yet in his heart was a seek first the kingdom of God. This was not just a guy who was being unanxious. This was a guy who was eager for something else. And in Hebrews goes on and and gives us a litany of these folks. But I want you to catch the the difficulty in this step. You won't find it in the first part of this passage. Right, the first part of this past, matter of fact, I was reading a magazine the other day. They had an author who was a well-known sort of hyper-faith author, and he quoted this passage, half of it. You'll see where he stopped. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. He liked this. This preached well. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is this is good. This this preaches great. Right. But that's not the whole verse. You can't stop right there. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others 
suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute. That's a good prosperity word right there, isn't it? Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Right, that, that's one passage describing the example of what it looks like to walk by faith. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Whether it means we're going to overcome the mouths of lions or we're going to be eaten. See, the anxieties are there. The opportunity to be afraid is there against the opportunity to say, but my eagerness is about the kingdom of God. And and, and if there's a cost even to my life, my priority is first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's the example we have in Scripture. We have that example in the early Christians who faced persecution at a level that we don't even begin to understand. Roman persecution was cruel. They watched one another die. and They watched their property be seized and their houses burned. They watched them be burned at the stake. Listen, Christianity is littered with story after story of somebody who was obsessed with the kingdom of God and who took a step in the face of anxieties. Look, when John Wycliffe stood up in the 1400s and decried the teachings of the church and stood in its face and said, no, this is wrong. This is being taught wrong. There's a a need for reformation in what's being taught here. Now, he got excommunicated. When he died, they dug his bones up and burned him. Which is better than what they did to John Huss. John Huss, who came after him, who also challenged the church and said, wait, the church has drifted from the Bible. The church has drifted from the truth of God. Well, they excommunicated him and burned him at the stake for that position. Listen, that was a common thing. So when Martin Luther comes along, that we're more familiar with than the other two guys, and says the church needs reformation, do you think that was an anxious moment for him? He wasn't just concerned as to whether he'd be kicked out of the church. He was concerned as to whether they would burn him alive for what he believed. And yet, and yet, in face of that anxiety, what does he do? He says, I am bound by conscience. Here I stand. And he spoke up against the church. And he set in motion, as with these other men, the reformation that that the church critically, critically needed. Thank God for people who sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even at the expense of their own lives. Now, listen, there's a lesson in this. I mean, this would be true for missionaries who their passion was for the kingdom of God to take the gospel and to spread the reign of Christ into that region where they knew there's cannibals there. They'll take your life. They won't believe what you've said. It'll be years ever before any inroads will be made and and you will serve up the gospel and then you're going to be served up. And yet they went anyway. In the face of anxieties, they sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I wrote this out in your outline. The king, the kind, rather the kind of faith God looks for It's not merely survival faith. Do not be anxious. But rather advancement faith. Seeking and striving and stretching faith. 
that is obsessed with the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the kind of faith God's looking for in the church. The ultimate prize for the Christian is not peaceful existence that's free from suffering, pain, sacrifice, and uncertainty. It is the advancement of God's kingdom and the display of his righteousness in our lives. Listen, let's not fight to have a faith that somehow if we can just believe the right things, then all the difficulties will disappear around our lives. All the threats, all that awakens anxieties in us about life will be gone. That, that, God's not calling any of us to that. He's calling us to a faith that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness at all cost. No matter how many anxieties it stirs up. This last thought from John Piper. He says, one of my aims, this is a great chapter, it's called Risk is Right. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, one of my favorite chapters in that book. One of my aims is to explode the myth of safety and to somehow deliver you from the enchantment of security. Because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction you turn, there are unknowns and things beyond your control. Is that true? Every day. The Christian life is a call to risk. Jesus made this clear. He said, for example, in Luke 21, 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. The key word here is some. This word puts the earthly life of the disciples in great uncertainty. Not all will die for the cause of Christ, but not all will live either. This is what I mean by risk. It is the will of God that we be uncertain about how life on this earth will turn out for us. Boy, that does not preach in a lot of churches. That's a great sounding statement, isn't it? It is the will of God. That we be uncertain about how life on this earth will turn out for us. And therefore, it is the will of God that we take risks for the cause of God. See, we are called to seek first, right? With all the power that that word means to aggressively pursue, to anxiously go after the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even when the backdrop of doing that is anxieties, fears, uncertainty in our life. Now, why this message today? Well, because it has been a distinct privilege to have walked through the last few years with this church. Because the backdrop that Katrina threw up for us was a backdrop of enormous uncertainty. I don't know how many times I used that word through those years. How many things were just up in the air. How much uncertainty there was. And listen, when there's uncertainty, there's anxiety. So against the backdrop of anxiety was an opportunity for a church to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness.
And, you know, if you're, if you're new to the church, let me just, I'm trying to encapsulate what the uncertainty felt like as an opportunity to seek first the kingdom of God was made available. Katrina hits August 2005. Our first meeting as a church was in late September in my house. Wasn't anywhere to meet. Still underwater. 170 people. Had no idea how many people would show up. Didn't know where people were. 170 people showed up for that meeting. We regrouped as a church amidst huge uncertainty. What do we do? How do, how do, we, how do we go on? What do we do next? Who's coming back? Can the city sustain anyone? Are all these businesses going to close? A thousand questions. You guys asked all these questions. We borrowed a church on a Saturday morning in Bouti and met there for a couple of months. All 150, 160 of us. Some of you guys remember that. We moved in a little bit closer to Kenner First Baptist Church from about January of 2006 to about July of 2006, for about six months or so. All 200 to 250 typically on a Saturday morning of us. Now, during that time, we're having to make a decision. What do we do? Do we fold up? Continue? Take a step of faith? What, what do we do? And what God begins to give us the opportunity to believe Him for is to do something much larger. Pete and I were just throwing these numbers around the other day and... You know, I've said this before. Faith lives right next door to crazy. <laughs> right next door. And, you know, what we did in faith five years ago, I would have said was crazy. And looking back on now, only because faith has become sight, if it weren't for the fact that faith became sight, I'd still be saying, you dudes were, were nuts. <laughs> what were you thinking? Because you had a couple hundred, three hundred people meeting on a Saturday morning. Now, people's lives were regrouping, but we didn't know where everybody was going to fall out at that point. And we were having to make a decision on something that was going to cost $11 million. Have you been in the church for a long time? You know, we never spent anything like that. We spent $450,000 on a renovation once, and that was like a move of Congress for us to do it. <laughs> and so here is an $11 million opportunity with a church that's been shrunk to about half its size. And a step of faith has now been made available by God. And we brought that to folks that were in the church. And we prayed and we sought inputs from the other leaders in the church and from those of you who were here and begin to think through the finances of this. And, uh, and God had brought blessing to us in a number of categories leading up to Katrina. But it still was going to take quite a bit of money to be raised in a very short period of time. Nine pieces of property in this area, nine different property owners were going to have to be willing to sell their property. Every, if any one of them said no, right? You, understand? you could buy it all, but you had you know, one piece that was three houses over and then two more houses next to it. That one piece shuts the whole thing down. So you get nine people 
Now, I remember sharing this with other leaders in Sovereign Grace. And it's like, man, you got some dragons to slay, dude. You pull that off. And yet there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to be anxious. There's an opportunity to seek first the kingdom of God and to step forward in faith. And sure enough, all nine of those pieces of property come online and get bought by God's grace. And we begin to present to you guys opportunities for offerings. Opportunities against the backdrop of your own anxieties. Do you remember? Your own houses. How are you going to pay for that? Insurance covered this, but not that. You were having to figure out financially, how were you going to live in this moment? What about your job? Nobody felt real job security during that time because there was talk everywhere of this division's closing and this division's going to be consolidated in Baton Rouge or over here or in Houston. And so you didn't even know if you'd be staying here. So there was anxiety about that. There's some of you who started businesses during this time. There's anxiety about how do we make this business work? How much financial investment do we need to make in this? Can we pull this off? So against the backdrop of all these anxieties in our lives, this church turns around in 2006, 2007, 2008, over and above regular giving, gives $3.5 million to build this place. Yeah. You know, God allowed us. God gave us favor. I mean, you, you got churches teetering and banks saying, we want to loan you how much? Five and a half million, really. How many people you got in your church? Uh, have them all fill something out here and we'll think about it. But I remember talking to a pastor, one of the Sovereign Grace churches who had built. <laughs> he said something that was both helpful and insulting all at the same time. Uh, he said, dude. If the bank's got the faith to lend you the money, you ought to have the faith to take it. <laughs> like, yeah, I'd hate to say this guy over here doesn't even know God's got more faith than we do. Uh, but here, here was what was before us. And here is why my tribute this morning, this is a tribute to this truth in our lives. Because amidst all the uncertainty that we faced together as a church, individually as families, amidst all that uncertainty, you lived this verse. And you sought first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then we have lived in the good of all these things have been added to us, haven't they? All the concerns, jobs, and how will this houses get rebuilt, how will this all happen? God worked in all those things, and we experienced His faithfulness. But, but what a testimony this morning. And I, I want this morning to be a morning of remembrance, a remembrance of God's faithfulness, but a remembrance of the principle of God's truth in our lives. Because the future is upon us now. And guess what? We'll get to do it again. Not exactly the way we did it before, but, you know, 2010 is coming and there's opportunities in it for the kingdom of God to be sought first by the people of God and his righteousness to be what we're after. 
And it will come with expense. It will come with steps of faith. It will come with anxieties against the backdrop of how do we do that? How do we move forward? How do I afford that? How do I give to that? How do I pray for that? All right, so this morning, a little tribute, a little video that we put together just to remind us of God's grace in our midst as we sought first His kingdom and His righteousness. How God brought us to this place to launch a future for us that is going to blow our minds. It's going to blow our minds. The mere fact that we're here is mind-blowing, but it's going to blow our minds.